How's everybody doing today? All right, all right. So I'm going to do that again because I'm very uncomfortable with the five and a half people that said something right there. Uh, how's everybody doing today? All right. I, I consistently say that to the extent that we are invested together, or this morning I was saying, and, and I've been feeling, that the extent that we're invested in moments like this together to the extent to which we'll get out of it. But let me be honest, the extent to which you're invested in this moment is the extent to which I feel comfortable and, and passionate about what's happening right now. And so for your sake of getting good sermons, I want to encourage you, be invested, right? Be invested or else you're going to, or else you're going to hate me. And I might hate you. I don't, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But what we're going to do is we're going to jump into our time in the Word, and uh, we're going to start a new sermon series that I'm excited about. All right, thank you. Oh, wow. Wow, look at that. It's amazing. That's incredible. Oh, see, guys, we're, gonna, we're off on a good start. I was feeling the life just sap from my body due to sickness, but your, your energy is giving it back to me. Okay, it's called 10, and take a guess at what it's about. The Ten Commandments. My God, you people are on it. Okay, so about the Ten Commandments. Here's the thing. I wanted to talk about this because I've been thinking about this idea of the Ten Commandments a lot. The reason is... Before I start, let me, set a, let me start a timer here so we don't take all day. Um, is that the Ten Commandments take such an incredible amount of space in our cultural discussion or, or narrative today. You know, like they kind of stand out as this sort of like uh, Judeo-Christian idea that, that seems to be at the center of so much of our conversation, but not really in church. They stand out as this cultural linchpin, this cultural thing that, on, that, that our culture turns on, and yet we don't actually ever talk about them in church. And so we, we see them in arguments about whether they should be displayed on capitals or, or whether they should be displayed in public forums, and, and if you are for them being displayed, then that means you're on some type of like conservative religious side, but if you don't want them displayed, then that means you're on some non-religious secular side, and so... That's kind of like this, this big cultural space that it takes up for us. Like, man, these are so important. These are so important. And yet, I'm not going to do this to you. I thought about it. I had it written down in my notes, and then like five seconds ago, I was like, I ain't going to do that. But if I were to take an, a poll, honestly, if you could give it anonymously, and I was like, yo, can you recite the Ten Commandments by memory? Like five of us would say yes. Let me be very honest with you. Prior to preparation for this sermon series, I could not do that. <laughs> and I love the Bible. I love the Bible. But again, they stand out as such a cultural juggernaut in our world, but in our Christian lives, they don't really stand out that much. And so the reason why I want to talk about them is because I think that they speak so much if we actually listen. They speak about who God is. They speak about who we are. They speak about a vision that God has for us in our lives and a vision he has for the world. And yet when we neglect them or we politicize them or we put them in a little box of what they're supposed to mean in our culture or in our world, when they become conservative or they become progressive, when they are anything outside of this incredible thing that God has provided, we lose so much valuable insight and wisdom and beauty that God gives us in, in these words that, that are the only part of the law in the Old Testament, the only part that God verbally gives, that God himself writes, that Moses doesn't write, but God himself says, this is from me. 
I'll, I'll, I'll say it. I'll even write it down. How powerful is that? And so I want us to go through these for the next 10 weeks. That's right, 10 weeks. We're going to give a week to each one. Uh, and y'all should wait. Just wait till this fall when we go through Acts 2. You're going to be like, this guy is crazy. Uh, but I hope that as we do these little bite-sized portions, like, like the last part with Romans 12 and 13, and we just kind of progressively work through it. This with, it's going to be Exodus 20, that, that, that later on with Acts chapter 2, that you would start to see how even just little chunks of the Bible can do so much to your heart and so much to your mind. So that's what we're going to do right now is we're going to start in Exodus 20, and we're just going to work out each and every one. We're going to go through each and every commandment. We're going to see what it says and what it reveals to us about God, about ourselves, about the vision that God has for us. We're going to start with the first commandment, which is in the first three verses, uh, Exodus 20, 1 through 3. It's going to be on the, on the screen if you want to read it along with me. Um, I'm not sure what it, the ESV might be on the screen, or the CSV might be on the screen. I really have no idea, to be, to be quite honest. So, uh, <coughs> but if you want to read it with me. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. First commandment, do not have other gods besides me. Do not have any other god other than me. Right? Maybe that's kind of how you've heard it before. Um, and so we start here. First commandment, what does it mean? What do y'all think that means? Just give me, give me, I'm a class participation guy. What do y'all think that means? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods besides me. Don't have idols, okay? The word idols has made its appearance. Glad to see you. All right. Uh, how, anybody else? What does it mean? Don't worship other things. Okay. I'm just going to, this is just going to roll like a small group for a second. What does that mean? What does worshiping other things look like? Taking all your time, taking all your priority, taking all your attention. Anybody else? I'm sorry, say it again. Higher value. Very good, very good. I think that y'all are catching on to this really well, and I think that this is helpful because it, it really does kind of just stand out as this is, this is what it means. And, and here's the thing. As just Christians, you kind of grasp this idea. You grasp it. It's not hard to understand. And then you've been in church long enough to be like, oh, yeah, this is what it means. But if I was going to summarize it, and you probably would look at this and be like, yeah, that makes sense. It, it's this, that out of love, God's people are to prioritize God, that's Yahweh, the Hebrew God, above everything. That out of love, God's people are to prioritize God, Yahweh, above everything. Now, that sounds like everybody could look at that and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That checks out. That's good. But the thing is, I think this reveals three really important and really powerful ideas to us when we start to dig into it. Okay, the first thing that I think it reveals to us is this. This is for God's people. This is for God's people. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Okay, this is written to those who have been set free by God. It's not written to the people that were the captors or the the masters of God's people. It's not written to the people that, that live in the land that God is going to, to give to the Hebrew people. It's, it's not for the Native American people that are across. It, in this very moment, it's for God's people. It's for the people that God has saved. If you have felt his liberation, if you have felt his freedom, if you have felt his forgiveness, 
God is saying this is for you. That means that we cannot hold non-believers accountable to something they're not responsible to. That's what that means. If this is for God's people, it means that you can't hold non-believers responsible for something that they're not responsible to. Oftentimes in our culture and in our society, we end up using things like the Ten Commandments, specifically this first commandment, in order to say that this is how you should live. This is how you should think. This is how you should behave. And then anytime someone digresses from that way, we cast stones at them and we say, God, this person is so horrible. Our culture is so disgusting. Everything is so bad. Look at all these things that are horrible. Man, we need God. This country needs God, X, Y, and Z. But when we behave like that, hear, hear me. I want you to really hear me. It shows that we have a completely off view of the gospel. When that's how we see the world around us, it means that we have a completely negative, horrible, mutilated view of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus has saved. Why? Because it reveals that we think these are rules that save you. When we look at the culture around us and go, everybody needs to be doing this, and everyone's not doing this, and so it's disgusting. It reveals that we believe these are rules that save you. If you live like this, then you're saved. So we all need to follow these rules and to live like this. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Here's the thing. In the, in, in the progression of this story, God rescues, then he gives commands. He doesn't give commands and then rescue. He rescues and then he says, for all those that have been rescued by me, for all those that know the sweet, the sweet taste of what it means to be freed by my redeeming hand, those that have been freed live like this. Not if you live like this, you'll be free. These are the truths that the, the way of life for those that are saved is the way God calls us. For those that have been rescued by him, he, he informs how we live. That also means that we need to be more worried about if we're living out these type of commands than if others are living. We need much more worried if I, as someone who claims to be saved by God, claims to be saved by Jesus, I need much more worried if I'm living out the ways of God than if the world around me is living out the ways of God. Because they're not responsible to it. I am. You are. But here's the thing. This leads us to our second aspect here. That this devotion is done out of love. This devotion is done out of love. The reason non-believers can't possibly be responsible to it is that they don't love God. They don't love God. But, but yet, uh, the people who are God's people are called to be devoted to him out of love. Why? Because he saved us. Because he saved us. That's why we're called to love him. If you look at this verse, it literally is talking about the fact that the God that brought you out of slavery, the God that freed you, right, he's the one that set us free from guilt. He's the one that set us free from shame. He's the one that set us free from our failures. He's the one that set us free from our addictions. He's the one that set us free from our dependences. He's the one that set us free from, uh, from, from our whatever, insert your struggle, right? That he has saved us, and as a result, because he's changed our lives, because he's protected us, right now we respond to him in devotion and in obedience. That's the progression. Last week we talked about the fact that we have to change our relationship with morality. That oftentimes we see morality as a means of salvation. If I do enough, if I'm presenting my life in a, in a good enough way, then, then I feel the sense of affirmation and love and, and that pressure is what I live with when it comes to morality. 
I'm doing the right thing, and I'm putting all the pressure on myself to say I need to do the right thing in order to get this. And literally here, God is flipping that again way earlier in the story. If you ain't noticed, Romans is way later in the story. But way earlier in the story, he's saying, no, 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 because you've been saved by me, right? Therefore, you love me. Therefore, you respond. The pressure is off because there's no achieving here. There's just love and affection. And that's the invitation. And here's the thing. For so many of us, our obedience and devotion to God quite robotic. For a lot of us, our obedience, our devotion, our following of God is robotic. It's like a routine. I can tell you what I do every single morning. I wake up, bathroom, shower, teeth, clothes, I'm ready. At no point do I think, God, I love clean teeth. At no point do I think, man, I love clean armpits. No point do I think that. It's just a routine. I do it. I do it so that I can get out of the shower and then go see my daughter, see my son, see my wife, see my family, uh, talk to y'all, go to a meeting, X, Y, and Z. And in those moments, maybe I'll hug my wife, my kids, and think, God, I love you. But oftentimes when it comes to following Jesus, we treat him more like the routine in the morning than the embrace afterwards. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do these things. I'm, I'm devoted. I'm a Christian. I, I do X, Y, and Z. But, but I, no, I don't have an embrace. I don't have an intimacy. And here's the thing. In, in the Bible, love absolutely, love absolutely is about commitment. That commitment is, it's, it's necessary because your feelings don't always they don't always stay the same. Anybody that's been married longer than like five minutes knows that your feelings don't stay the same. While you're dating, you're like, oh my God, I love this person so much. They're so amazing. Oh my gosh, their farts smell like roses. It's incredible. And then all of a sudden, like, like time goes on and you're like, no, that, that smells like not roses. That's, no, that, that actually, what they just did there agitates me a lot. And then all of a sudden you get married and you're in the same house like all the time. And all of a sudden it's like, man, if they would have just did that dish a little bit better, we wouldn't have been doing that dish right now, right? All that little stuff compounds. And in those moments, you're not, if your marriage is like, well, we're together and I made a commitment, so I'm just going to robotically obey it. I guarantee you your marriage sucks. I, I guarantee you, and it's not that I don't think that that commitment is important, but if in your life, and in your marriage, you resulted in saying, you know, I kind of cast away the ideas of romance and affection and emotion. I'm just going to kind of settle for just robotic obedience to the idea that I got to take care of you. That's the extent of what you do. I guarantee you, your relationship is struggling. But, but, if we take time, just look back and be like, look at these, look at the reason. Remember the reason why I love you. Look at all the incredible moments that we've had. Look at the incredible joyous times that we've had. Look at all the sacrifices we've made together. And then from there, I start to do something like, I'm going to wash the dishes a little bit more today. Why? Because, man, look at the beautiful life that we've lived together so far. If I want that to continue, I need to sacrifice. And you remember why you love someone. You remember why you come back to them. You remember why you care for them. It will build something. And it will build something more than a robotic response of, yeah, I got to do this. It'll build, I want to do this. I love you. That's why I've, I've, I've lately decided, I've, dis, I've just decided to give the advice that I hope everyone that gets married can have 
the biggest slash most meaningful wedding they possibly can. And it's like, well, but it's an, and, and hear me, I know some people are like, hey, financially I can't afford X, Y, and Z, but, but I have started to give that advice of like, hey, make this as, most, as meaningful, as large, as powerful, as incredible as you possibly can. Because there's two times in your life where everyone's going to get together and celebrate you. Your wedding and your death. One of those you don't even get to enjoy. One of them you get to enjoy a lot. And the thing is, as life moves on and as, as, as just life hits you and the struggles hit you and the frustrations hit you, having photos, having memories of saying, look at how beautiful and powerful this thing we're on together is. That we would spend so much money that so many people would say, I will go celebrate you because this is a big deal for you. That they all circle up, that they all dance, that they all sing, that they all make a big deal, that they all want to talk to you. And you can't even eat because people are like, hey, man, congratulations. Shut up and go back. I need to eat. Right? Like, all that's happening. The fact that it's so powerful and it's such a big deal reminds you this is important. This is valuable. This is beautiful. I'm going to let this go for nothing. I'm going to fight tooth and nail for it. I'm going to sacrifice for it because I love this person. I've engaged and entered into the most powerful thing that two people of the opposite sex can do together in terms of our commitment to one another. I'm going to live in this. I'm going I'm to understand it. I'm going to pay attention to it. And that's exactly, exactly what God is doing when he says, this is the God who saved you then. Look at the pictures. Remember the song. Remember that what's happening here is not just routine. What's happening here is not just happenstance. That you were saved by a God who sees you and loves you. Remember it. When life is challenging and we don't want to necessarily engage with God and it feels more robotic, go look at the pictures. Remember the life change. Remember the breakthroughs. Remember the times where God was compassionate. Remember your failures and God's mercies in response to your failures. Remember these moments like they're, like they're pictures of your wedding. And remember that the journey you're on is more powerful than you can really understand. So keep going. Love him, see him, cherish him. Right, it's, this devotion is done out of, out of love. The third aspect is this, that everything, everything is subservient to God. Right, that this idea that everything, you'll have no for me. Some of us kind of read that and go, okay, well, like, I'll have no religious preferences above God. That's kind of our understanding of it when we read this. Why? Because we live in this modern world where like there's religion and state and they're separate and so like we go to school and we don't really think about that or we go to work and, and everyone's kind of like, hey, you keep your religion to yourself, buddy, right? There's only a couple of things we don't talk about here. Uh, and, 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 and like the craziest stuff is on the table. You go to work and the craziest, most vulgar things are on the table. But if you're like, hey, I need to pray, people are like, whoa. And so we, we live in that culture, that society. They ain't live in that society. That's not the society that, that the people reading this, this, uh, these commandments lived in. They lived in a society where religion, faith, religious practice was involved in everything in their life, not just some things. And it's hard for us to understand because we're so far removed from it. But it would be like, the best little example I come up with, if you could, it would be like if you traveled to Houston I'm going to reserve my personal opinions about Houston for another day. <laughs> but if you traveled to Houston, and when you got to Houston, it was Buddhist everything. Everything was Buddha. And I don't mean like you got there and there was more Buddhist temples. I mean like the city council started their sessions with like Buddhist prayers. 
and you went to a restaurant and there was all Buddhist themed stuff. And before they presented you your food, you had to do Buddhist prayers. And so to exist or to live in Houston at all, you had to actively be a part of the Buddhist community. That's what life there was like. Every city they traveled to would have some God that was at the center of everything that happened. Not just kind of separate of religious life and then a, a political or public life, but an everything life was wrapped up in this idea. And so for, for God to look and say, you'll have no gods besides me. You'll have no God other than me was to say even the most necessary aspects of life, if they demand you to worship something other than me, you will neglect them. You will turn away from them because I am your only God. This is what makes the stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you remember them? In Daniel, that comes from this, where they're going, no, 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 no. I know that the, the part of life, I know that life as we know it in Babylon is to pray to you, but according to our way of life, we put nothing before God. We don't pray to God. And it's not that we don't put, we, we, it's not that we can have something that's like uh, adjacent to God. I'll have no God besides God. So even praying to you is something I cannot do. You want to throw me in a fire pit? Go ahead. But it's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. For many of us, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to need some water. Hold on. For many of us, I think that we place God among a list of other priorities. As though he is one of very many priorities. When the world around us says, uh, this idea, success, whatever, will bring you life, we go, okay, sure, I'll try that. When the world around us says, hey, you know what? There are a lot of ways to heaven, not just one. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I just think Jesus is beautiful, but, but yeah, there's, there's several ways, sure. When God asks his people to prioritize him, to make him the centerpiece and put nothing, nothing before him, nothing besides him, right? but that he would alone be what we're devoted to, it means that everything else is cast away except him, that he and his ways are now the priority and the compass by which all of our life is lived. Not some of it, not the private part, not the public part, all of it. He is the priority. He is the compass by which all of my life is lived. The, uh, the best example that I could think of in terms of like an analogy that brings all this together is one that should be familiar to us as Americans, and it's just Western people in general, and it's sports. This is the best thing that I can think of that really relates to this. And for me personally, it's Arsenal. My life my life, if my life had a compass on how I use my time, my family is one. But a close second is Arsenal. <laughs> right? Like, even right now, if I'm being honest, at 1030, they played their final game of the season. And one of the most important players on the team is leaving the club, leaving the team after today. And he scored twice today. If you don't know, in soccer, that's a big, yeah, thank you. That's a big deal. Clapping is necessary. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was sitting back there, and I was trying to recover because I was very tired. I said I've been feeling sick the past few days. And in my sickness, as we were worshiping, I was like, yes, God, yes, God. And I felt the buzz, and I was like, Shaka scored. Like, and I sure enough pulled out my phone, and I saw it, and I got so excited. 
And so when, when there's like something on at 6 a.m. on Saturday, despite Friday nights being a very free night for my family, I will tuck in at like 9.45, 10 o'clock at night knowing I got to get up at 5.30. Why? Because Arsenal plays at 6. It's the guiding compass to so much of my time. And the thing is, for a lot of y'all, there's something else in that spot. Maybe for you it's the Dallas Cowboys. Maybe for you it's the Texas Longhorns. All right, maybe for you it's, maybe for you it's something else. Maybe for you it's your job. Maybe for you... Uh, it, it, it's, you know, a social life. Maybe for you, it's one specific person that you really want to like you. And so you do everything you can to make that person happy. All the little things in our lives that say, I'll take center spot and I'll be the compass of your life. And I'll tell you what you're wor what's worthy of your time. I'll tell you what's not worthy of your time. I'll tell you how to use your time. I'll tell you what's appropriate. I'll tell you what's inappropriate. That's what you're going to be devoted to. And in that way, I think that, that so many of us worship so many other things when we put it into context like that. What prioritizes my time? What makes my heart beat? What demands so much of me? What does my heart flutter for? Right, like all those little things that I can really associate with a random team in London that I will probably never see in my adult life or my childhood. I don't know why I said adult life. Right, that has nothing to do with me. And yet it, it, guides so much of my existence. The Longhorns, a school that like five of us in here went to, and yet the whole city is like, I, I aggressively follow this thing. The, the excitement of like half the city goes up and down depending on if they're winning or losing. <laughs> right, and, and here in this one moment, the commandments are saying that place is reserved for God. God is the guiding compass. God is the guiding principle. He's the centerpiece of your life. That's what molds you. That's what guides you. Now, having said all that, I do want to say one more thing. Um, where am I at? Okay, I got some time. We're like a little over 20 minutes right now. Um, there's one thing, I, I, again, I need to cover before moving on. That's how this idea has been hijacked and used to hurt people. Because what I just said is powerful. I think that it's important. I think you should hear it. I think I should hear it. That God is to be the, the guiding compass of our life. That he is to be the priority of our life. That he is to be the norming thing. That idea in, in, in theology speak is he's, what, he's, he's the standard of everything else in your life. If it goes against his will, then it's not okay. If it conforms to his will, it's the right thing to do. He should have that role in our life. Yet, uh, I think a lot of us who grew up in church have felt the pressure to place God before everything, and it usually comes out uh, with a distorted meaning that goes something like this. It's either God or blank. It's either God or blank. It's either God or that girl. It's either God or that boy. It's either God or that job. It's either God or that school. It's either God or that friendship. It's either God or that cause. It's either God or that house. It's either God or insert the thing that you felt before. Okay. I spit bars, bro. I don't know what to say. I don't, <laughs> your boy's out here spitting. I don't know what to tell you. All right. Um, <laughs> right. It, it's either God or blank. And so there's a lot of us in here. There's a lot of us in here that because of how you have experienced that moment, you said goodbye to a lot of people. You said goodbye to a lot of dreams. You said goodbye to a lot of desires. 
because you heard someone say, it's either God or that thing. It's God or that thing. And you have to prioritize God, and that means you have to let go of everything else. And yet I would, I would compassionately warn and encourage you that that is not the vision that I see in the Bible whatsoever. That's not the vision I see in the Bible. Jesus spoke about this specific idea, and he lived this specific idea in powerful ways. Um, in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus says this. When asked about the most important commandment, you guys have heard this before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard it before. Love God, love people. That's how people summarize that statement. And the thing is, Jesus is doing something really powerful here. He's summarizing all ten commandments in two commandments. The first four are about how we love God, love God, and then the last six are about how we love people, so love your neighbor. And so he's taking two ideas and saying they're all important. They're all important. There's not one that's the greatest because to live them is to, to say that I love God, to say that I'm devoted to God. He's the guiding compass of my life, and as a result, that guiding compass will lead me to loving others. It will lead me to caring for others. It will never lead me to abandon a sinner. It'll lead me into the table of a sinner. It'll never lead me to cast out somebody who feels like they're unworthy. It'll lead me to embrace people and show them their worth. It'll never leave me saying, hey, I judge you that you're not worthy, but it'll lead me to call people into who God has made them to be through love and compassion and mercy. That's how Jesus lives his life. There's, there's a woman brought to him who's caught in adultery, and he says, I don't judge you. Get up. Don't sin anymore. I love you. Right? That, that's the way he lived. He, he's going into tax collectors' lives, people, people that the culture around him actually hate, and, and people are literally walking up and being like, what is this guy doing? And he's like, man, the sick don't need a doctor. I mean, the, the healthy, the sick do need a doctor. The healthy don't need a doctor, right? The sick need a doctor. Jesus' obedience to these commandments never left him in a position where he said, it's either God or this, and I pick God and I neglect you. It left him, it always led him to the point of saying, it's God, and because it's God, it's you too. And I love you, and I'll care for you. I'm not saying there aren't moments where things for the sake of safety, are necessary to get away from people. Think about abusive situations, stuff like that, 100%. But I want you to know that, that in the moments where you're seeing people that, quote, unquote, sinners, you're seeing people that, that are not, uh, don't believe the same thing as you, man, Jesus, through following God, it leads him right to the table of those people. It leads him right to fellowship with those people. It leads him right to caring and interacting with those people. And in those moments, he doesn't say, uh, you're so horrible. You know, you really should get your life together. It leads him to a moment of saying, God loves you. He sees more in you. You're called to something greater. You don't need the thing that you were pursuing right now. And it lifts them up out of the darkness of their lives. That's what following God looks like in Jesus' life. It's never, it's God or this, and you have to leave everything behind. It's God redeems and renews everything. So through Jesus, everything is made new. My relationships do change. I'm not saying they don't. Your relationships change. They will. My, my perspective on what brings life and what is helpful in the world is different. Yes. But that doesn't mean I neglect or turn away from those spaces. It means that God has given me a new vision for those places. God has given me a new vision for those things. No longer is my job meant to satisfy me, but my job is meant to glorify him. I'm meant to display who he is and his commitment and his love and affection. This is exactly who Jesus is. This is the model that he gives us for following God. 
Following God doesn't mean neglecting the world. Following God means loving and redeeming it. So our lives should never be because I follow God, I've left behind everything and I'm never going to see it again. I've left behind my old self, yes, but my relationship with everything around me has been completely made new because I've been made new. As a result, I engage with it in different ways. Jesus' devotion to the sinner didn't just lead him to sitting at the table with sinners. Jesus' devotion to God and therefore love for the sinner led him to a cross to die for sin. That the most devoted person would go to the cross as disobedient so that the unfaithful, disobedient people could now be found and welcomed as faithful. That's where we operate from. That he rescued us. He saved us. And now we're invited into a new way of life. The other way around. Where am I at? All right. You know, I'm going to do the mature preacher thing, and I'm going to scrap that last, that last little point that was there. Yeah. Um, oh, you should clap, clap for me, Joseph. It's true, yeah. No, don't do that. Don't do that. What are y'all doing? What are you doing? Okay, so how do we bring this all together? How do we bring it together, right? Application point, what do, what do we do? How do we bring it together? Uh, all right, three ideas for you real quick. The first one is this. Uh, you should, I want to encourage you to repent of unkindness toward others, especially unbelievers. Again, unkindness toward people who are unbelievers is rooted in the fact that you have no idea what the gospel is. I respectfully and gently and lovingly want to tell you, if you're belittling to an unbeliever, it means that you yourself do not understand God. Because the mercy of God is the triumph uh, of the cross that when we were judged and we were guilty, the mercy of God overcame our guilt through the blood of Jesus shed and his body broken. That's the narrative and story of God's salvation. And every time we look at unbelievers and treat them judgmentally, it declares that we do not rely on the mercies of God anymore, we rely on the actions of ourselves. So repent of unkindness to, to others, specifically unbelievers, and maybe, maybe repent of your own reliance on yourself and, re and return to the vision of God in, in Jesus where mercy triumphs uh, on the cross. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one uh, is look at God's love as a gift and not a transaction. Kind of going off of the first a little bit, but look at God's love as a gift and not a transaction. Again, the very first point, and I, I kind of would love to keep making it, uh, is this idea that, man, God did not give commandments and then save. He saved and then he gave commandments. It was a gift of love to redeem and save you, not a transaction. Your life is not a transaction. Your forgiveness is not a transaction. Your approval is not a transaction. You do not give anything in order to receive those things that you long for most. They have been given to you from a loving God and a merciful God. The more you work for them, the farther they become. But when we draw close to receive the gift of God in salvation, in the mercy and grace of his forgiveness, in the affirmation uh, and the acceptance of uh, his sacrifice, in those moments, we begin to understand uh, 
the longings of our hearts, and we begin to understand and find the source of where we need to find them. The last one is uh, learn Jesus. Did I get it right? I did. Um, that was the, the least difficult one to remember, to be honest. Um, learn Jesus. The more time, I remember uh, we were a small group the other night, and I forgot what somebody said. I think it was Dwight. Um, I think it was Dana that said, I have sometimes when I read the gospel, I just feel like I get a real front row view of Jesus. And that's true. Let me be honest. The reason all of God's word is given to us by God. So I don't want you or anyone else around you to influence you to make you think that reading the gospels, reading Jesus' life, is somehow more hearing Jesus than reading Romans or reading 1 Samuel. It was all given by God. However, when we read Romans and 1 Samuel, we have to interpret it and apply it and understand how to live it. The beautiful part of reading the Gospels is, in fact, that we just get to see how to live it. We just see all of the vision of God in this person of Jesus. And so when they're bringing him broken people, and he's like, you're healed, you're forgiven, you're loved. He's embodying all of what we see that in human hands has been distorted and in human hands has had moments where it's like, oh, this got way screwed up. Right? It's like a game of telephone where, where the word of God came to people, it had a beautiful vision, and in our sinful hands, and in their sinful hands, and in David and Moses and Abraham's sinful hands, it kind of got messed up. And somehow they interpreted it and lived it in ways that were like, oh, that's confusing. Right? When we get to Jesus, there's no slip up. It's just God embodied on earth living his vision. And so that's why it's easier. Now, again, all of it is God's word, but it's easier to learn God when we're learning and, and seeing the life of Jesus. And so learn Jesus. And through learning Jesus, you learn God. Spend some time in the gospel. All right, I know that some of y'all are Psalms people, and you're like, oh, I love them Psalms, bro. Them Psalms where they're like, hey, God is my refuge. It's like, amen. Right, like, I know. I know some of us are there. But spend some time in the gospels just seeing the character of God lived out in the person of Jesus. And I promise you, it will give you a vision for God that's shaped God actually intended the life of the human to be lived in the life of Jesus. So learn Jesus. Um, my prayer is as we work through some of, these, some of these commandments that we will be able to start building a vision for what God is saying through them. That they invite us into a vision of God, into a vision of us, and into a vision of life as we're called to live it in following God. And I'm praying that that'll be an encouragement to our heart and that it'll change your life and it'll change the life of those around you as you engage with them in new powerful ways that are marked by the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, more than they are ourselves. Pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that we get the opportunity uh, to come to your word, to see you exalted and lifted up through the preaching of something that happened thousands of years before you arrived. And yet, when we read the words of, of, of devotion, do not have any other God besides me. They elicit the vision of you living your life perfectly in devotion to the Heavenly Father, and from there, living your life perfectly in, in, in compassion and mercy and love to other people. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the gift of the Word. Thank you for the gift of these commandments. But ultimately, thank you for the gift of your Son, who displays them perfectly and who embodies them perfectly on the cross for our sake that we would not be those who seek commandments in order to receive salvation, but those who receive salvation and now are invited into a new way of life. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.